welcome to the Sport and History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week we're continuing our series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with the postgraduate researcher Beth Gaskell. Hi. Hi Beth. Uh, Beth is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Greenwich where she is completing a PhD. You've handed it in, I believe. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah finally in. Yeah. Uh, good news. Uh, she's completing a PhD on the British Army in the 19th century. Uh, she's also been active in History Lab, the postgraduate network for historians, which is run by the Institute of Historical Research, as well as working as a curator of newspapers at the British Library. So there's a lot for us to get our teeth into today. And it should be of a, a lot of interest to researchers out there. Um, but first, I want to talk to Beth about the paper that she gave for us at the IHR something like two years ago, I think now. Yes, yeah. yes, it's a while ago now. And that paper looked at the role of sport in um, 19th century periodicals. Can you tell us something more about the paper that you gave at the IHR and how central was sport to military life in the 19th century? Um, so the paper I gave was focused on the role that sport played in professional military periodicals. So these were periodicals that were written uh, to be read by those in the 19th century military. Um, and um, I really wanted to talk about how central sport was to a lot of these publications. Um, I'm not a sport historian, so I hadn't gone into, into looking at these publications with a mind kind of focusing on sport. But the, the amount of content in some of them was just incredible um, and so it made me sort of really think about why sport would be there, why publishers would think it was important, why men in the military would want to read about it um, and so the paper was sort of unpicking a few of those um, those things. Um, the paper really focused mostly on regimental periodicals mm. um, and journals because that's where the most uh, sports coverage was um, and sometimes sport can make up make up up to a third of the content of a, a regimental periodical um, so I was sort of unpicking why um, sort of focusing a lot on ideas of uh, discipline and morale um, but also just the fact that the military in the 19th century um, was quite often not actually actively engaged in any kind of warfare and so there was a lot of free time that needed filling. So it's all between the Crimean War and the Boer War I suppose you have a series of small colonial yeah. wars but nothing Nothing major. major. Um, like I look at the entire 19th century so actually you've only got the sort of the, the sort of three wars that intersect um, so the Napoleonic Wars then the Crimean War then the Boer War um, and yeah there was a lot of imperial uh, sort of small imperial wars but there was a lot of free time and even when um, soldiers were posted out to areas where there was active warfare um, they still spent a lot of time not doing an awful lot of fighting um, and so they, they filled their time a lot of the time by playing sports um, for the officers that meant hunting shooting polo um, for the men of the rank there was a lot of football um, cricket, athletics, Highland games, um, sometimes some very odd sports. Um, there seem to be a lot of things involving sort of, it sort of sounds like uh, children's sports days sometimes, like sort of egg and spoon race type of things. Um, but yeah, um, sport just played a huge part in the life um, of many soldiers. Um, and particularly it played a really important role in kind of developing um, esprit de corps. So this kind of idea about um, the, the sort of um, 
thing that bound a regiment together. Um, so they'd focus on the history of the regiment, whether it's fighting or playing sports. And this would be interregimental rivalries yeah. and things like this? Yeah, inter interregimental rivalries, inter-forces rivalries. So there was quite often sport played between the army and the navy. Um, and um, also just sport that was played within a regiment. Um, and um, like sports, sports that were played years before would be remembered. There'd be pictures of medals and trophies that were won. Um, and um, particularly if a, a regiment was getting posted out somewhere where they previously served, so 20, 30 years ago, um, one of the things that would be talked about would be um, how, what they achieved in sport previously when they were hosted there and whether they could recreate their sort of fame. So sport played a, quite a central role in institutional memory yes, in these, yeah. uh, in these uh, regiments. I yeah, suppose. and the kind of myth-making process. Um, the two things that were really big in that were, you know, fighting, which seems really obvious, and then sport, which seems less so. Well, perhaps it shouldn't have seemed less so, but it, for me it was a bit of a surprise. So. Yeah, and um, so what, you, you said you used uh, regimental papers for your um, sources yep. and talking from a professional point of view how easy are those to find I mean uh, not always that easy um, the British Library has quite a good collection of some of them um, I also went to the United Service Institution um, okay. uh, the Royal United Service Institution which has a library and has some um, there's a there's lots and lots of regimented journals I've identified but haven't been able to find copies of. Um, I think a lot of them are in regimental museums which are spread across the country. And they're not always the best organised places. No, they're quite often run by, um, by volunteers who are often ex-servicemen. Um, they often don't have any kind of online catalogue. So sometimes it's a question of emailing and asking. Um, I've got very mixed responses to doing that. Sometimes I hear nothing. Sometimes I get a reply that's like, oh yes, I think I might have seen some of those in the back of a storeroom somewhere. Um, and then other times I get a really detailed response saying, yes, we've got this, this publication for these years. Um, do you want to come and see it? Um, I haven't really had much time to go out and see some of them. So I've been relying a lot on what is available here, um, which isn't always I'm aware that this has skewed my research somewhat. Yeah, well, I think it's something that sports historians will recognise as well, is that things like county cricket clubs, some are amazing at yeah. keeping their records, others they've just got them in a box somewhere. And yeah. 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 Same kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's sort of surprising how hard some of these things can be to access, particularly some of these, you know, these are published um, works. It's not kind of, shouldn't really, none of this should have been really sort of deep archival research, but... Um, they're not things that have been kept, um, or if they have been kept, they're not always things that have made it to sort of big institutions. Yeah, and, and how does this work on sport fit into your overall thesis? I introduced your thesis, but I didn't really uh, yeah. introduce it in detail. So my thesis altogether is on the development of military periodicals um, okay. from it's sort of from the 1790s through to 1914, so long periods. Oh wow, it's a big one. It's yeah. a big one. I probably have bitten off more than I can chew a bit, but um, no one's really looked at these in depth before, so I sort of felt I wanted to sort of map out the this sort of period. Yeah. Um, and so I'm looking, I've got several chapters that sort of focus on the development of different types of periodicals, um, so commercial periodicals, um, such as weekly uh, military newspapers, and um, monthly mag illustrated magazines, those type of things. And then I've got another chapter which looks at the development of regimental periodicals and um, institutional publications from the kind of um, the sort of things that were produced by the educational 
um, institutions that surrounded the military. Oh, okay. yeah. um, so the Royal United Service Institution, um, the Artillery Institution, places like that. Yeah. Um, and then I've got some thematic um, chapters that sort of look at um, professional identity and masculinity um, and look at the the roles that different roles that war and peace played um, and basically sport has come up in all of my chapters yeah. to some extent but um, it came up a lot when looking at regimental publications and it came up a lot when looking at the idea of kind of masculine professional identity in the military sport played a big part in um, sort of the development of professional identity and the development of masculine identity within the military yeah and do you see that changing over the long 19th century that you've kind of chosen for your study? Um, yes, it becomes more institutionalised, um, it becomes recognised that sport's important um, and so initially it's kind of um, a pastime mostly of the officers, um, hunting, riding, shooting was important for the officers but it becomes something that's really accepted as important for, for all of the men um, and it becomes really important as an idea of kind of how to practice for war in a way that's not dangerous. Yeah, yeah this was something that um, I was talking to Gary Sheffield about yeah. <laughs> um, in, a, in an interview that unfortunately um, uh, didn't come out. Um, but yeah, he was talking about the way in which originally sport for the other ranks was not seen as you know anything that officers should concern themselves with. But as the century goes on, it becomes much more part of the pastoral care, almost, of, yes. of, uh, of those men. And that's sort of reflected in the, in the publications as well. So there is some mention of sport in the sort of early publications, but really from the 1840s onwards it takes off, and it sort of builds up, builds up momentum as the century goes on. And by the end of the century, um, sport takes up a huge percentage of most of the periodicals, not the most technical ones. Um, some of the really technical ones only touch on sport if it's in relation to something to do with training or um, they might have articles on things about um, the importance of gymnastics training or something. Um, but for the, the majority of other periodicals, they would at least have sports reports of um, events that were held. Um, but many of them had accounts of um, professional sports, uh, amateur sports, military sports, um, occasions um, that came around sports, so balls that were thrown after sporting events, those kind of things. So. And do they pick out particular stars? Because from my own research, um, looking at South Africa, there are certain sportsmen who are kind of soldier sportsmen, really, who kind of cross the boundary between Mil being specifically military sportsmen, but also being kind of popular heroes. Almost. Yeah, if, if there was, if there were any um, soldiers or officers in particular who sort of became celebrities, they would get reported about a lot yeah. in the military press. Um, but the, the biggest focus was on military sport itself, um, yeah. and it was very often it was very much focused on the regiment, um, which was very important because. Towards the end of the century, there was a bit more of a focus on celebrity, but a lot of this was really, it was really important that this created a sort of fostered this environment where it's teamwork and team building. Yeah. So it, it was definitely there, and they were never going to ignore um, a sort of positive report of a soldier, but it was definitely much more in the military periodicals about the regiment yeah. or about the team 
Um, that's well, that might be a neglected kind of source though for sports historians yes. if they're looking at particular figures. Yes. It might it might not occur to, to some people to look at regimental magazines. For no, example. It, I think they're definitely they're a good source for a lot of sports history in some ways. Like there's a lots lot of, of visual material. I'm guessing. Towards yes, the end of the lots century. and lots of photos of sports teams. There's some amazing photos of tug of war teams, um, but also yeah, like polo teams, um, football teams. Um, sometimes actually sporting events, not very few like, sort of live action pictures because the photography wasn't up to it, but um, there's a lot of pictures. There's also just a lot of information about the evolution of particularly football. Um, there's some very early accounts of the rules of football from the early 1860s, those types of things that um, the military played a big role in the development of the sport and that was reported in yeah. the military periodicals perhaps with a different slant to how Royal, it might have been. Royal Engineers I'm thinking were significant uh, yes. football team. I yes um, and um, I just think like many many of the early football teams were related to the military um, and that's, that's recorded yeah. um, and like I say it's just got a slightly different slant to how it might be recorded elsewhere so yeah I would encourage people to look at them um, if they can get their hands on them. Yeah. <laughs> so you're obviously very familiar with uh, newspapers, it's your passion and it's what you work with at the British Library isn't it? Yes. Um, so can you just tell us more about what you do in the newspaper archive, what are you working on there at the moment? Um, so my official job title is um, Curator of Newspaper Digitisation um, and That's I work... A big <laughs> it's a big, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's sort of... Um, Yes, it probably sounds a bit bigger than it is in many ways, but I work on a project called Heritage Made Digital, which is the British Library's in-house project to try and digitise a range of sources. Um, and I work specifically on the newspaper side of that. Um, and we're working to create a collection of um, 19th century newspapers um, that are, we're digitising them, we are making them openly available, we're making the data openly available, um, and we're also trying to focus on items that are um, physical copies that are in poor or unfit conditions, so people yeah. have problems accessing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also items that are a little bit tricky and so don't get picked up by um, other organisations who are digitising things, so short runs, um, things that are um, bound or collected in more difficult ways. Or just things, formats or things like that. Some different formats. We've definitely one of the newspapers we're digitising is so big there's been question marks over whether it will fit on the scanners. Oh, right. um, we're trying to avoid, we're not doing very much from microfilm, so we're going back to the hard copies. Um, and sometimes they're quite tightly bound. Um, sometimes they're bound in with other items. There's things that make them quite tricky to handle or quite tricky to digitise. Um, and so for various reasons these things have been neglected and we're trying to sort of rebalance that. Yeah. Um, we're particularly focusing on London-based um, newspapers, which in most cases London has never been neglected in any form and coming down to looking at history. But um, because of the way that the British Library collection has developed, um, and particularly its microfilm collection of newspapers, which is mostly provincial newspapers. Yeah. The, the British Newspaper Archive, which is the biggest source of um, digitised newspapers, um, has a slant towards the provincial rather than the metropolitan, and we're trying to rebalance that a bit as well. Oh, as a Londoner, I'm, I'm all behind that. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously you're working at the British Library, you've been yeah. doing your thesis yep. for how many years? Three, four years? Uh, all together, including breaks, five. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> baby break yes that. yes yeah, so yep. <laughs> how, how do you how do you manage to 
juggle these these different roles? Have you got some tips for people who might be going through the same experience or starting out um, um, on that journey? I would say try to do two things, not three. I definitely think having a baby, doing your thesis and having a job is one thing too many. Um, you can't always plan for that though, which no. is, um, <laughs> life happens. Um, I think the big thing is making sure you've got time that is sort of ring-fenced for research and really trying to make the most of it. Also, working out how you work is important. I've got friends who found it really important to book off days or weeks where they would just focus on, on their work. Yeah. Um, I'm actually better at doing short, sharp bursts, so I'd find that if I had two days off in a row, or if I had a half day off, I'd probably get about the same amount of work done. Oh, okay, that's um, interesting. I seem to lose momentum the longer I have to do <laughs> things. Um, so I, wor I worked out that for me, one of the best things to do was to have, I had an afternoon a week, that was set aside and quite often a weekend morning and that's when I did the majority of my work. So it was two half days a week. Yeah. Um, and I got more done in that time than I did in an entire week I got it's I a, took off. It's a, it's a good idea though to analyse your own way of working. I yeah. think that's a really good idea because uh, because it helps you to make more efficient use yeah. of the time that you have, doesn't it? Yeah. Like you say, if you if you've got two days off but you only actually use one then, half of them, yeah. then you might as well do something fun for the other exactly. day and a half. Um, and I know I work better in the mornings, but some people work better in the evenings, yeah. so you've sort of learned those kind of things. It um, might be that you don't, or not you specifically, but people don't recognise when they're working and it might be better to ask somebody else for yes. a bit of a... Um, um, outside. <laughs> it, it can definitely help um, and it also you just have to negotiate with the people around you like um, I was very lucky to have a lot of support my husband helped me well we both juggled everything he took a lot of half days off yeah. um, my parents came down and helped quite a bit with childcare so that I had some time um, yeah you kind of and again it's recognizing what people can do and what they can't um, yeah I think that's a good tip is not to be afraid to ask people for help because the only thing they can do is say no exactly yeah, um, and, and sometimes they did you know I'd say yeah. can you come down and cover me for this day and they'd be like no we've got plans and I was like okay I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll do what I can um, it's definitely been tough um, that hasn't left an awful lot of room in my life for things to go awry um, yeah. and so there's been a few times where I've had to take breaks from studying because there just hasn't been the leeway in my life to continue to focus on it the way that I need to. Yeah. Um, universities aren't always great about that, um, they've not, I, I don't know, PhD programmes aren't really designed for you to have breaks and so that can be quite tough to negotiate yeah. um, but if you need it you definitely need to ask for it. But you managed it at Greenwich? Yes, yes, yeah. um, yes they gave me the time. Um, they were, like my supervisors in particular, were very supportive and very understanding of the fact that I needed the time. Um, it's just the administration of it that ends up being a lot more complicated than you'd like it to be. It's the curse of the historian is admin. Yes. <laughs> or the university-based uh, historian anyway. Yes. Um, um, so, yeah, um, it's definitely, like, you need, to, you need to do what you need to do. Um, sometimes it is just about making everyone else aware of that. Yeah. And while you were doing your thesis, you were part of the History Lab network, which yes. is a network that was set up by the IHR, I believe. Yes. So tell us some more about how that works for people who aren't familiar with History Lab. Um, so um, History Labs, it's, it's aimed at um, sort of fostering a network of postgraduate historians. 
um, and there are weekly seminars held where people give papers and it's all postgraduates giving papers to postgraduates um, which is a really nice way to have your first experience of giving a longer paper because the papers are sort of 45 minute papers so um, it's more than your sort of conference average conference paper yeah. um, it's a really good way of getting involved they run their own conference they have the seminars they quite often organize a number of events um, throughout the year, elevator pitches, um, networking opportunities, so that's great. It's also a really good support network, um, I made lots of friends, I found lots of useful um, sort of uh, networks that I might not access otherwise. Um, I got involved um, in the committee which gave me a good experience, I helped to organise a conference, I helped to organise events. Um, and it's a really good opportunity to sort of see the other side of those things which you don't always get a chance to do as a postgraduate. Um, also it's really good because it was the first place I felt brave enough to ask a question of somebody giving a paper. Uh, the papers are quite broad, it's anything to do with history, so you get people who are talking about medieval history, people talking about economic history, people talking about really contemporary events. Um, so the majority of people in the audience won't know the subject very well. Um, so it was. It, it sort of felt important, I felt like I should always ask a question at a seminar. I felt it was the place where I could ask a stupid question and say, I know nothing about this, can you talk a bit more about this thing I don't understand? Um, and I think it's made me braver about asking questions in other situations now. Yeah, well I always said to my students that there's no such thing as a stupid question. No. There's stupid answers, Yeah. not stupid questions. Um, but I think it, like learning to ask questions in new situations is actually, like it's, it's a, it is a learning process. Um, and definitely faced with my first few conferences and sort of seminars where really established academics were talking, I just felt like it was something I didn't know how to do. Yeah. Um, and it became particularly being... It can be intimidating when you're starting out. It, it really can. Um, and I think in particularly being involved in the committee because it was that, that thing of feeling like you should definitely have a question just in case no one else did. Yeah. So it made me listen differently so that I knew the kind of questions I should be asking. Um, and making sure that I wasn't asking something that had been covered, but also, yeah, just just learning the way to phrase it so that it was something that the the speaker could answer. Yeah, you're not trying to point score or anything no. like that. Yeah, um, those are the, those are the words. Those are stupid questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and because because of the nature of the organisation, because everyone's a postgraduate, you don't feel there isn't it isn't competitive. You don't ever feel like you're being talked down to, um, and yeah, I was I was I was very actively involved for two or three years, and it was it was a really um, great thing to be involved with. Plus, they go out drinking after the <laughs> seminars, um, so we had a lot of fun as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you'd, you'd encourage uh, young researchers yeah. to look it up. Yeah, and you can find them on Twitter. You can yeah. find them. Yeah, yeah. If you, yeah. If, if you Google History Lab, it, there's yeah. there's lots of um, links to their their social media. And is that just a London thing? That's that's run out of the IHR. But yes. Do they um, there's been various beyond? there's various things that were once attached that some in some cases have sort of split off in the, in um, various regions. Um, but they do also encourage people to come speak from. Um, outside of London, I think there's quite often a little bit of funding to help pay for yeah. expenses. The, the F word is always uh, yeah. makes people's ears pick up. <laughs> yeah, um, so there's, there's, there's usually a certain amount, um, obviously it will depend on what people need to, for people to come in. Um, and there, there have been a lot of attempts to kind of build the network beyond London, uh, which I think the big thing is because it's postgraduates, it's quite, it's just a very regular turnover of um, of people who are running the organisation, yeah. which makes it difficult to maintain sort of dispersed networks. 
Um, but it's, it's, I think there's like a, there's a northern history lab, which is okay. a, a breakaway yeah. group, yeah. which is quite nice to see in some ways that they've established something similar. But um, I think it's sort of based up in Yorkshire. Yeah. So. And what, <laughs> what are you working on at the moment? Uh, we were talking just before I switched this thing on. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got something, a chapter in a book coming up? Yes, there's, um, I'm in the process of writing a chapter for an edited book, which is about... Um, 19th century periodicals, um, trade and the professions, so it's sort of looking at the interactions between um, sort of um, periodical writing and periodical publishing and the professional world um, and work. Um, so you're looking at periodicals or publishing as a business in, yes. in this kind of... Yeah, and sort of looking at what the type of publications aimed at um, a sort of working audience were trying to achieve. Um, and I'm specifically looking at military periodicals again. I'm looking at the role of um, military periodicals in developing professional identity for the military. Um, and I'm going to be looking a lot at the fighting of jewels um, and how that was covered in military periodicals and what that meant for... Um, in, this is in Britain, fighting yes, jewels. That's yes, interesting. Um, which was illegal the entire yeah. time, um, but it happened a lot until the 1840s. Okay, so it's like sort of Duke of Wellington period yes. jewels. Yeah. Um, and they were covered in military periodicals and there was a lot of discussion about what this meant in terms of professional identity. Um, and there was a lot of shifting in that um, during the period. Um, interestingly, they continued to be covered in military periodicals right through the century, looking at um, continental yeah. um, duels, which continue to be fought. Um, I'm writing about someone at the moment who fought at least three duels. Uh, yeah. Who's a sports journalist? Yeah. But in France, I think everybody yeah. got, the, got the sword out. When it, it, was, uh, it still happens in Germany. Um, yeah. They still fight duels with swords. It's obviously not... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's not... To the, you know, no one gets seriously hurt, but it's still something that happens. So, um, but the military periodicals sort of shifted from viewing it as a, a very uh, sensible, honourable thing that you had to do, even if it wasn't, um, you know, desirable, to yeah. just being like horrified and fascinated by these strange uh, foreigners who continued to do it. So. It's interesting how quickly uh, an attitude like that can yeah. shift, isn't it? Yeah. From it being uh, not respectable, but at least respected. Yeah. Um, to being something that is not respectable, yeah. but we can look at it across the channel and yeah. kind of get it. Yeah, um, it happens really quickly, I'd say within the space of 20 years, there's this kind of idea that this is a really antiquated thing and it's really odd that foreigners are still doing it. Yeah. And I'm sort of reading that being like, like, 20 years ago you were writing about how this is something that it's impossible to stop doing. So, yeah. Um, oh, maybe we should give a paper on duelling sometime. Well, yeah, I'd be, I'd be very, very happy <laughs> to do like that. I feel like we should do it at 20, 20 yards apart yeah. or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great. Really, I'm really um, glad that you could come along today and uh, share your research with us. And uh, if you'd like to see details of Beth's work, uh, you can find them on the webpage. I'll ask her to send them to me after yes. this. <laughs> I'll put them on the webpage for the podcast and I'll put it in the podcast description on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you out there, the listeners, uh, think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series at the IHR, we're always looking for speakers for future events and I'm also looking for people to interview for the podcast. So if you've published on sports history, um, yes, do get in touch and I'll see what I can do. And you can get in touch with me or with Raf or anybody else at the BSSH who might be running the podcast or doing things via their website. That is sportinhistory.org. 
or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, which is easy to find if you uh, search for British Society of Sports History. Our next seminar is very soon after the publication of this podcast, and that will be on Monday the 4th of November 2019, for those of you listening in the future. Um, and Helena Byrne will be talking to us about the history of women's soccer in Ireland. And Helena, I believe, is a colleague of yours, Beth? Yes. Yeah, yes. So uh, uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's on Monday. And everyone is welcome to come along. You don't have to be a member of the BSSH or the IHR to come to our seminars. Um, the event is open to the public. And that event will start at 6 o'clock at the IHR in uh, Russell Square uh, next Monday. Um, but that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye.